Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. This episode is sponsored by Tyndale House Publishing. Change your brain every day. 366 days to a better brain, mind, and life. Psychiatrist and clinical neuroscientist Dr. Daniel Amen draws on over 40 years of clinical practice overseeing the treatment of tens of thousands of patients to give you the most effective daily habits he has seen to help you improve your brain, master your mind, and boost your memory, and help you feel happier, healthier, and more connected to those you love. Pre-order is now available at Tyndale.com. Welcome back. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you a very special conversation. And I say special because I'm going to be sharing with you a conversation with someone who is special to me. And her name is Charity Taylor, and she is someone that I've worked with in the past. And when I first met her, in order to help me understand the context from which she was coming from, She talked about a television show that was in a religious type of community. And the television show, I think, was called 21 and Counting. I remember that show. And I remember that it was uh, very religious and fundamentalist. I remember the long skirts, the long hair. And she said this was the environment that she was raised in. And so Charity's experience is developmental trauma in the context of religious trauma. She's going to be talking about her experience. And what I wanted to say before we get started is that when it comes to religious trauma, everybody's experience is going to be different. And everybody's choices is going to be different. Some people choose to want nothing to do with faith, religion, spirituality, and others try to make sense of it and maybe they open up to a faith or a spirituality that makes more sense to them that feels right to them, that works for them. So I wanted to say that no matter what your experience is, 
even if it's different than charities. I still think that this episode is going to be validating. And I hope that you will find it helpful and supportive if you've been through something similar. So now, on to the episode with Charity. Hi, Charity. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Monique. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here, Charity. I really, really am. I think that this time together and you sharing is such an important part of your healing journey. And I think that uh, it will really support people who have been through similar experiences to see that they're not alone and that they make sense. So Charity, we're going to talk a little bit about your um, your upbringing. Um, you know, this is the first time I think I've talked about uh, religious trauma. And I know even the word religious trauma, it can mean so many things and it means different things to different people, depending on their experiences and even the outcome. So this actually is your, your story, your experience, your voice, and your opportunity to talk with us and share. So um, first of all, maybe you can share with us a little bit about your family and the kind of environment and religious community that you were sort of uh, connected with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born uh, in the southern United States in the Bible Belt. Um, many, many, uh, there are many, many like me for sure. Um, I was born into a pastor's family. I've been a PK, a preacher's kid, uh, my whole entire life. And um, I was born into uh, a denomination um, in the Baptist world called the Independent Fundamental Baptist. So they're basically um, kind of a very, uh, they're more of a fringe Baptist group. Um, they're not under one particular heading and um, they tend to operate independently, but there is somewhat of a hierarchy within the system. They tend to have lots of standards um, about how you should live and what you should wear. And it tends to be a rather legalistic Baptist denomination, at least from my upbringing. And that's the type of um, denomination my dad was a pastor of. And then uh, also I was homeschooled in a program called the IBLP or Institute in Basic Life Principles slash ATI or Advanced Training Institute. Um, this is um, kind of most widely known from being uh, the program that the Duggars from uh, 19 Kids and Counting um, that they used. And that's kind of where it got national viewing. And so I was homeschooled in that uh, growing up as well. So homeschooled, pastor's kid. And I was raised in kind of a very much of an insular uh, religious society. Uh, my mother was my school teacher, my Sunday school teacher, my pastor's wife. Uh, my dad was my dad and sometimes our youth leader. And so you didn't have kind of a lot of outside influence and it was a very controlled um, environment. The information you received, the activities you were allowed to do, the friends you were allowed to have um, 
very insular. Um, you weren't exposed, even in the 20th and 21st centuries, you weren't exposed to a lot of influences from the outside world. Yeah. So when you mentioned that, that show right away, I'm, I, I see the long skirts and the, I don't remember if there was no long hair. I don't think there was a mm -hmm. head covering. It. So is that no. how you, is that how you dressed? Yes. So very long hair. Um, I wasn't allowed to cut it till I was 18. And even then that was a big, huge, I was basically made to feel like that was a big, huge, terrible mistake. Um, long dresses down to my ankles for the better part of my life. Um, no pants were allowed. Um, no makeup until I was 18. Um, yeah, very, as far, especially as a female, um, what you're allowed to wear and to do is just very, very controlled. Yeah. And even, um, I think, I don't know if I read this or, but that even colors are very like muted, muted colors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Um, I know that that was the case more in other families, particularly in the homeschooling group. My family was a bit more lenient on that. Colors weren't so much discouraged, but for instance, my skirts couldn't have a slit um, until I was about probably maybe 14, 15. They had to be all the way down to my ankles and wasn't allowed to wear pants or shorts of any kind. Wasn't allowed to um, participate in any activity that would require me to wear that. Um, the What I was told, I would ask to be in like gymnastics or, um, you know, ballet or whatever. It's like, no, you can't wear, you can't do that activity and be modest. So therefore you shouldn't do the activity. Um, so what I, what I wore very much, it was, didn't just influence how I appeared to the world, but also what I was even allowed to do. I'm thrilled to share that I'm going to be taking part once again in the 2023 Trauma Super Conference alongside 60 plus of the world's most respected trauma experts, including Dr. Peter Levine, Dr. Stephen Porges, Dr. Gabor Mate, Dr. Richard Schwartz, Dr. Bruce Lipton, and so many others. Some of the topics are going to be healing our collective trauma understanding and healing relational trauma, somatic methods for trauma integration, navigating chronic pain and inflammation, and so much more. To register for this free conference, go to my link in the show notes. See you there. Yeah, so you weren't allowed to then participate in gymnastics or like you mm -hmm. said. So, and, and I'm wondering, would would you have been allowed to participate in something that was outside of your uh, denominations, um, like something that was in more of a secular place, or did everything have to revolve around the church? Right. Everything had to kind of revolve around um, our upbringing and especially to make sure that there were no kind of like secular outside influences coming in um, to give us kind of a different viewpoint. Um, so if I ever got to play baseball, it was in our churchyard and our church was playing it together. As far as like extracurricular activities, the only thing I was allowed to do was take piano lessons from a woman that didn't attend our church, but she was a believer. Um, and so that was basically my one extracurricular activity. Um, yeah. Hmm. And so what was life like? I mean, you said very controlling in your family, like the mm -hmm. dynamics between your mom and the, how many kids were there? 
So there were four children total and I was the old, I am the oldest. Mm -hmm. So what was, what was life like? Um, So basically we didn't have a television in the home. We were not allowed to watch television until I was around, I believe, 12 years old. Um, I got to see it occasionally when I went to my grandparents, but even that was kind of like very monitored. As far as music, we were not allowed to listen to any music with like a beat. Um, Yeah, there was no rock music. There was nothing with a beat, period, uh, because that was from Satan, or at least that's what I was told. Um, So, and all the music had to be um, religious music, typically. As I got older, there was a little bit more leniency, so we could listen to like classical music. Um, but it, it had to be something, you know, written basically, you know, 1600s or whatever, or it had to be Christian music, um, that had no beat at all. So just everyday life was normal. Life wasn't what I have now come to understand was actually normal. And, uh, it was very, everything was spiritual. Everything was spiritualized. There was a lot of fear in everyday life. Um, from a very early age, we had to learn about like, the end times and the apocalypse and um, our minds were, as I look back now, my mind was dwelling on far heavier subjects than I feel like a young person should be thinking about, um, or at least to the degree I was thinking about them. Um, And I used to have uh, panic attacks actually when I would think about like eternity and the apocalypse and things like that, because I feel like a lot of really heavy information was introduced very early on. Um, which can make things kind of, or can make kind of your everyday thoughts go to places that I feel like children shouldn't be thinking about yet. Um, and it wasn't, it was, it was challenging for me to go through because I was a sensitive child. Um, Mm. as far as there was a lot of pressure to kind of conform to being perfect and, Mm what you thought was controlled. If you had a bad thought, you needed to confess it to your parents. Um, If you did something wrong, there were very severe punishments or what was regarded as wrong. And very often that could be just speaking dissent or calling out inconsistency um, that was deemed as kind of a rebellious spirit. And in the culture I grew up with, there was nothing more terrible than being rebellious. And again, when I say rebellious, I'm using that term very lightly because any kind of dissent from how you're raised to be is considered you're being a rebel, you're rebellious. Um, And that has to be like squashed. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 you're fine. Yeah. I mean, I think when people think of rebellion, you know, they maybe think, oh, my child has gone off. She's drinking or sexually Mm -hmm. active. I I, I don't know. But you're talking about if you, for example, like you said, pointing out inconsistencies or, you know, maybe saying something that they don't like, oh, you're right. being rebellious. Mm. Yes. Questioning anything is considered a form of anything that you're told by your quote, authorities. It's very, it's a very authority centric um, mm. kind of system. And questioning anything that your authorities say, even if you question it in a nice way, it's considered rebellion uh, because the system is set up so that God has given you your authorities. He speaks to you through your authorities and mm-hmm. to disobey or to question your authorities is to disobey or question God. Yeah. It so sounds I, really cultic, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And really, really fear-based. Very you know? fear-based. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I remember when I was quite young having like, well, you're basically, and I'm generalizing here, but in the system I was brought up in, you're basically taught that there's like a demon under every rock. Like I wasn't allowed to play with Barbies. There was a whole set of toys I couldn't play with. I wasn't allowed to watch any movie that had magic in it because there was always something wrong with what felt like everything when I was a child. But Mm -hmm. what was wrong with a Barbie? Uh, basically her body was too anatomically correct for an adult. And so I wasn't supposed to think about sexual things. This was, this is actually from my parents' mouth. I wasn't supposed to think about sex or sexual things until the night before I got married. Literally, that's when I was supposed to find out. And so I wasn't even supposed to have like an anatomically correct doll. I'm I'm just laughing. (laughs) And you're probably thinking, like looking at the Barbie going, I just, I never thought of that until you just mentioned that. Exactly, exactly. And then you're given the explanation of why you can't have it. It's like, well, that makes your brain go to places that you wouldn't have even, (laughs) you wouldn't have even thought of. Yeah, yeah. So um, just everything was just very controlled. And so then you learn from quite an early age to be scared of everything because everything is bad. Yeah. And one of the things you you mentioned was that you weren't, there was no freedom to express what you thought or what you felt or anything like that, because it'd be called rebellious. So how did that, how would you say that impacted you as a person? Right. Um, Well, one of two ways, there would be times that for whatever reason, I would feel it would be so important to express something I thought or felt and I would do so knowing I would be punished for it. But it was like, this is so important to me. I have to say it or I have to question it. Uh, But then on the other hand, and this was where kind of I existed most of the time was you just kind of (sighs) exist in your head, in your own little world. And you have like this safe place inside your head where you can think all the things and question all the things, but you just know they, they can't come out of your mouth. Oh boy, that's relatable, I think, to a lot of trauma survivors, regardless of whether it was a religious uh, home or not. But you said something interesting. And what you said was, is that you end up keeping it in your head and living Mm -hmm. in your head. And what that does really is it connects us, disconnects us from the experience of living in a body, you know, absolutely does. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I came to realize far later is that um, how it's played out kind of in my adult life is, I mean, I just realized this not too many years ago um, is that I've just always ignored sickness or how I felt. And I just, my term for myself always was just power through. And Mm -hmm. essentially the message is it doesn't matter how you feel you do what is right or I'm using air quotes, you know, what we, what we say is right. And it doesn't matter what you feel about that. That's invalid. And your feelings really don't matter. It's what we say is right. And so I realized that that kind of transferred into my adulthood to where like, it didn't matter if I felt like my body was shutting down or if I felt like I can't do this or I need to say no to this social engagement or whatever the case might be. It's like, no, you just do what people expect of you. And it doesn't matter what you feel. And that was definitely the message. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I remember when we worked together, because we'd worked together, um, that uh, one of the things I did notice about you, and I mean, I've said this to you, is how many times you apologized for saying (laughs) something or in thinking you're inconveniencing me by saying something. And to you, that was just, just what you did. 
you know, mm-hmm. as if, and that makes total sense. It makes so much sense. Yeah. Well, you tend to realize, I think, or at least in my experience, is that if there is something wrong in whatever is going on, whether it's an interaction with someone else or, well, something's going wrong in my life, it's my fault mm-hmm. because that system is a system of like guilt and shame. And it's also very much kind of beat into your head that if something is going wrong in your life, then you have done something wrong and you need to fix it. And it's, it's not like, oh, just bad things happen in life. Or it's like, no, you have sinned in some way and <gasps> you're either being punished by God or you're, you've let Satan in somehow. And so you need to find out what is wrong and fix yourself. And so then you just become this type of person who's like, well, if something's wrong, it must be me or I am inconveniencing someone or I, I have to make sure I don't offend people because I'm the person who there is a problem with. That's just that whole culture. That, that's what I was going to ask you is, was that like just in your own family or was that sort of, because that's really like, that's, that's blaming. Um, it's blaming. It's like, you're saying it was either um, it had, you know, it wasn't just the bad things happen, but that you caused it. Oh no, this not just in my own family. That's very much particularly um, the homeschool culture we were brought brought up in. Um, it's a very much a intricate system um, where kind of scripture is very much twisted and taken out of context. And it's very much used by the authorities on those who are under authority, whether I feel like sometimes there was a sinister leaning and sometimes there wasn't depending on the person. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was basically used to say, if you're, if something is wrong, you're not obeying enough, you're doing something wrong. And it was always used by those in authority on those who were kind of underneath them. Um, and so there are <clears throat> basically thousands of young people who are raised in that system, um, kind of a cultish homeschool system that I had mentioned earlier. And it's very much a consensus, you know, throughout that I've talked to many, many, and I know many of them. And it was very much a yes, if something is wrong, it is my fault. And that was very much mm. a part of what we were taught growing up. That is just so sad. I mean, just everything you're talking about, it's just a, it's such um, a, a prescription for just disaster and dissociation and um, yeah, leaving your body and just, you know, yeah, I, I, I want to get to the part where you started to realize that um, that this was not um, this was not who you were. This is not who you wanted to be. That there was there was more of you that wanted to be expressed. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Right, right. Um, so, I mean, I think as I kind of look back and as I begin to remember more things, because there were parts of my childhood that actually. I had completely forgotten until I really completely removed myself from that situation. And then they begin to come back, which is really, really odd and weird. Um, but it had started to happen. And I mean, I remember <clears throat> from just like, or, you know, as young as seven years old, and I believe I told you this when we worked together, um, you know, being, you know, bringing up something and being told, Oh, you're being rebellious for saying that. And, being punished quite severely. There was, um, it was called discipline in my home, but it was very much, um, you know, uh, corporal punishment that happened, um, 
basically daily um, and for a very, very long period of my life, much longer than it should have. Um, and I remember thinking, I think I was probably around seven thinking when I have kids, um, I'm going to listen to them and I'm not going to, for lack of a better term, you know, pretend like what they say doesn't matter. And I remember thinking this is like not right, even as a child, like thinking this isn't how I should be treated, if that makes sense. Um, that's and so, then, that's so incredible. You see, you, you even, it's crazy. It is, yeah. but it's not, it's not crazy <laughs> because even at seven years old, there was this, you, your authentic self that was like, no, no, this is not right. And when I'm an adult, it's not yeah. going to happen. I'm going to let them express themselves, be who they are. That's incredible. Well, and you feel so helpless in so many ways because these are the people who have the authority over you have to do what they say. It's the people who are feeding you and all of this. And, and um, I mean, but I would, you know, I remember waking up every day thinking, what am I going to be punished for? And it was a pretty fearful childhood. Um, and I remember, you know, throughout the child, just random moments where I would think, this is not how I'm going to be if I have children. This is not mm -hmm. the kind of parent I'm going to be, you know, and I loved my parents and I to this day love my parents. But um, I remember thinking this is, this is not right. And then as I, as I got older, um, when I was a teenager, uh, I would start to call out more inconsistencies and we were very much encouraged to have like a personal relationship with God and to have our morning devotions and prayer time. And for that, I am grateful because I really established um, what for me is a very real relationship with God. And in many ways I look back and that's kind of what kept me sane and got me through some mm -hmm. of it. Um, and that's the one thing I have retained to this day that I find a value in my childhood and growing up. Um, but I remember I would be reading my Bible and, you know, just coming across even what I found with the sanctioned translation even. And I would come across things and I would bring it to my parents' attention. I'm like, well, I'm hearing this, but then the Bible says this. And it was like, well, and it was always, I started to question even kind of more strongly in my teenage years. And then really in my early twenties um, was when I started to be like, okay, this, this, I have reason and this is not lining up. Um, and I'm hearing this from these systems and from the, you know, like the authorities I've been raised with and, and inherent if I can just kind of pivot from this for a second inherent in this kind of culture particularly the homeschool culture was as a female you stay at home until you get married and you're supposed to kind of um your father is your spiritual covering your authority over you and you're unsafe if you come out from under that protection until you're married and then kind of the authority is transferred to your husband um and so I was living at home um through my 20s and um, I was questioning things more and more, still bringing it to their attention and still being written off and still being told that I was having a rebellious spirit and that um, Satan was using me and all of these things. But um, as I kind of went through my 20s was when I really um, started to come out of it and just like question things more and more. Wow. Um, and so talk to us about that a little bit about coming out of it, because I know that like I said, everybody's experiences are is different. Some people, mm -hmm. you know, completely want nothing to do with um, mm -hmm. any kind of religion or faith. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that you um, you kind of made this distinction that okay, the way that they're living out their religion or faith is not right 
for me, but yet you still were able to have your own spiritual uh, journey. Right. So how were you able to do that? Right. Um, so a, a couple of things. One, as I said, it was just like my relationship with God was very real, you know, all through my teenage years and growing up. And I would just kind of go to God in prayer. And my prayer life was just kind of my anchor. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, God, you know, show me what the truth is about these things. Cause I'm hearing this. This is all I've ever known. This is what I am told is the truth, but even reading the Bible, this is not what I'm getting. And so I would just pray. And I remember I would like be in my bedroom sometimes like praying and crying like, God, please like show me mm-hmm. the truth um, of, of these things for me. And, uh, and then of course, you know, the internet, thank God for the internet. Um, <laughs> you know, I started to like, okay, this isn't making sense for me. Are there other people out there that are questioning things as well, but you know, still believe in God because I was told essentially, and this was very much a part of how I was raised. I was told, you know, if you don't, well, other people believe in God, but we're the ones who are serving him the right way. We are the mm-hmm. ones who have, we know the truth. And um, we, if you serve God this way, this is going to please him most and your life is going to be really good. But if you do it these other ways, um, this is basically just a path to leaving the faith, if you will. Um, and which was essentially, and it was very much almost put to me, we would rather you basically be dead than leave the faith, you know, that type of thing, which isn't super comforting. Um, so yeah, yeah. And so I, I found myself being like, I know I really believe, you know, in God and, and I believe in my spiritual journey and, um, but I, all of the rest of this stuff isn't lining up for me. Um, and so I, I went looking kind of for people who felt the same, if you will. Mm -hmm. So you start to come across, um, blogs, you know, and this is back a decade or so ago, you start to come across blogs where people like, um, no, this isn't the right way to be. And just because you're, how do I put this? Just because you're questioning doesn't mean you're an evil, bad person or that, Mm -hmm you don't love God or, and this is not the only way to be a Christian, if you will. Does that make sense? So, yeah. And so I started to come across those resources and found out that with the way it was presented to me was not the only way to live a life of faith. And so, yeah. uh, Asking God for like, please show me the truth. And then also coming across other people who either were coming out of those systems or people who were believers, but just lived life very differently. They were, you know, allowed to kind of live more normal lives and um, very much left God. And, but it didn't look like I was raised at all. So what were, what were your, your parents' response to, to you sort of walking in a different direction? <laughs> yeah, not good. Not good. Um, I was basically told that Satan was using me to try to infiltrate, um, you know, like the, the church and, or, um, I was teaching a Sunday school class at the time and that basically I was going to be used to pull people away from God. So I wound up just resigning the Sunday school class because I was like, well, um, I don't want to say something that they don't want me to say. I want to be loyal to them and I don't want to say something they don't want me to say, but I also can't teach the message I'm supposed to teach in Mm -hmm. this system, if that makes sense. And then, um, I would, you know, come to them and like 
uh, show them like scriptures and be like, I don't think this system is, is, is the way it's supposed to be. And it was um, very much, uh, well, your God speaks through your authorities. And this is like, I'm like late twenties at this point. So very much an adult, but still very much Mm -hmm. living in a childlike state because I'm trying so hard to do what I've been told my whole life to do, which is honor that scripture, honor your father and mother's taken way out of context, which basically means in that system, do everything we say, you should do and everything we even want you to do for like ever, <laughs> you know? And it's like, that's not exactly what that means. Uh, I've come to learn. Um, and so, but I was, I was told that I was basically trying to leave the faith. I was trying to rebel. I just wanted to live a life of basically debauchery. And I was trying to find a reason that it was okay. That's what the response was essentially. Hmm. And, and coming from everything you said, why wouldn't it be that? You know, that makes exactly. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. So tell us how um, how you have started to feel as you as you left as you left that that um, system and started to, you know, wear things you wanted to wear, do <laughs> things you wanted to do, um, all of that stuff. Right. Um well, I would say it's kind of taken me two roads. Um, one is like intense freedom and it's just beautiful um, to know that um, just because I wasn't living life according to that system didn't mean I was a bad person and didn't mean I didn't want to be a good citizen and a good member of society and a good person in general, you know, uh, which is what I was so afraid would happen and which is kind of what you're conditioned to think will happen. That You'll just automatically become your worst self if you're not in the system. Um so just like just an intense beauty and freedom and just an excitement to almost get to experience. Like there are things that I only got to experience that like, as far as like figuring out what I wanted to do next or, Mm. you know, that you should be getting to do as a teenager that I didn't really get into until my thirties. Um, uh, so, you know, just a beautiful freedom that you feel, but then, um, I would say the flip side of that is also just uh, it kind of feels like all of the floors and walls have been pulled out from around you because you operated within such a closed and strict system and you kind of knew what to expect and you knew what all the rules were and you knew how to operate very well within that system. So in a way, as much as it was based on like fear and pride, it also felt really safe, especially when that's like all, you know, and so when all of that kind of goes away, um, you start to learn that it's still there in your head. And so you have to learn how to navigate making decisions outside of that mental prison, even if you're not physically in that environment anymore. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And how, you know, the body remembers. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and that was another thing that started happening. Um, is I started experiencing um, kind of like driving um, issues, um, panic attacks while driving. Um, And I spoke to um, a therapist friend of mine. We kind of worked through some of it. And what I've come to understand is that I just had lived my entire life in a very trapped and closed system. And now any time when I get in a situation where I feel kind of claustrophobic or trapped, um, 
my body kind of revolts against that because it now has felt kind of freedom. Um, and so when I go into that situation again, I just almost go into this panic mode where I start to get dizzy, things start to shut down. Um, my blood, it depends on when it is, but my blood pressure will go up. And when I feel like that, when I'm driving, um, when I have those issues. So I've been working through some like driving trauma stuff, working on stuff to help me with that. Because um, when I find myself in a situation where you feel trapped, um, then the body will kind of try to go into this like protective mode. And I think it was a mode that I would kind of go into when I was experiencing um, particularly some physical things in my childhood um, that I wanted to escape from. Yeah. Oh. So there's like a wonderful side to coming mm -hmm. out of it. And then there's also this, yeah. well, I'm out of it, but then the nervous system, as you said, the body yeah. and the mind, it mm -hmm. still remembers how it was to exist in that type of scenario for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the part that takes time to learn how to live, to be in a, in a place and time that has some safety um, and that, that, that just takes, it takes time for the body to realize that it is safe now that there is mm. no danger, um, and so on. But, uh, I always love looking at your, um, at your Instagram page, because I see you expressing a lot of the beauty that's in life. Mm. Um, you know, I see you, um, with, different types of food and just like beauty places. And it's just, I just see you living life and, and being in life. And it just brings me so much joy. Mm. Oh, thank you. That's, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, there is so, so much beauty to life. And I think that was from an early age, something I looked at, I would go on long, we lived out in the kind of rural area, country area, and I would go on long walks for hours by myself as like mm -hmm. a teenager. And looking back now, I realized um, that was regulating my yeah. nervous system. And I, and even when I would be working, I would rush home to, to get to, uh, to, to watch the sunset. I'm like, why do I need this so badly? You know, or, and I always loved food. And that was one of the few things I was allowed to do that wasn't a sin. So <laughs> I would bake things, you know, like the few things I was allowed to do, I would just pursue them fully. And I look back now and I realized, I was looking for like beauty and comfort within this really scary system. And mm -hmm. I was like grasping for it any way that I could. And so it, even today, now that I can kind of fully realize things that I love, things that I enjoy, um, those are, you know, I, I tend to try to live every day to the fullest. And it, it, I, I see that and it's just so beautiful. And it's like you, um, it's like you, you almost like a, book it's like you're there's like pictures your your pictures show, tell a story and I and I love it and I see that you are that you are living life and living life fully um how how is your relationship with your your parents today right um very complicated to say the least um currently um for kind of my own sense of well-being and my mental health. I currently do not have a relationship with my mother. In the system I grew up in, there tended, this is something I found from talking to many, many other survivors, um, there tended to be one parent who was kind of the driver of the system and one parent who kind of went along with things. Um, and 
for me, that person was my mother and still very much she's in that system and that mindset. And there had to come to this point in my life where I had to be like, until there's some type of acknowledgement, um, things will always be the same and I will always be triggered and I will always be working through forgiveness and just coping when I go around her, if something doesn't change and just, so for the past probably over two years now, I haven't had a relationship with her with my dad. There is a relationship with there. It's different than it used to be. Um, we are still in communication. And as I said, I love both of my parents. Um, but now that I am not kind of following those sets of prescribed rules and essentially not living the way I was raised to, uh, it makes me kind of a black sheep more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think for both of them that they both believe that they love me, but there's, there's not an acknowledgement really, even when I've tried to talk about it. Um, there's very much, it's still very much just like when I was a child and it just, my experience is written off and mm. excuses are given and there's zero acknowledgement and yeah. So it's, 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 it's hard to exist in that and, and have mm-hmm. a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you are putting the feelings of your self or your younger part you're taking it very seriously and you're showing a lot of self-compassion to yourself. Um, sometimes we will not find the acknowledgement and the, um, that we're looking for. They just, they're yeah. not able to give it, but the fact mm-hmm. that you're able to turn to yourself and that younger part of you, that wasn't, that wasn't validated that you can validate her now by saying, we don't have to be in this anymore. And, and just stick by that is just a, a wonderful thing. It's interesting that you say that because you're right there growing up there. I couldn't, I, there were situations I really wanted to get myself out of and I absolutely was powerless to do so. And I wrestle with it a lot. I pray, I say, am I living in unforgiveness because I'm choosing to remove myself from this situation? And I just keep having confirmation that no, I'm just being safe and I'm giving myself the safety that I used to not feel that I I had. Now, I think that forgiveness is um, everybody's on their own journey and what they want with that or what they believe about that. But I, I read something very recently, a couple of days ago, and it said something like, um forgiveness you can forgive but that doesn't mean you need to reconcile Mm. and you know whatever it is charity with you whether you forgive or not forgive but taking care of yourself and doing for that younger child that you're that sadly your parents weren't able to do for her and still is not able to when you give them that opportunity you're taking care of her you're honoring her and that's your healing that's your healing work Mm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i'm not saying it's easy i mean there's pain regardless we don't want to we don't want to cause pain to others we know that 
but I, I really feel like this is something that's so like right there, especially like I get it because I had that type of childhood where, oh my gosh, I mean, my needs were just invisible to, to, mm-hmm. to all the adults around me. And so my priority really is to take care of her. And I love seeing you do that today. You're right. It's, um, it's not easy work. And when you're kind of conditioned to believe that you are the problem, you find yourself, even when you know you're on the right path, you find yourself continually questioning that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's work that is worth doing. So. Mm. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with us today. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to say any last thing that you may want to share before we we end our time. Oh yeah, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Um, yeah, I think for me, the thing I would just say is, growing up, I always had a curious mind, um, and I found questioning shut down at every turn. And I would just say, you know, when you find yourself in a situation where you are questioning when things don't line up, when your reason um, is telling you to watch out or to ask questions, I would say ask questions. Um, if if a system can't hold up to questions, then it's not a true system. And when you start to feel like there are inconsistencies, especially that feel damaging to you, I would just say it would encourage those who find themselves in that situation to just not be afraid to look for the truth and asking questions doesn't make you a bad person. Mm-hmm. That's That was huge for my life and I've always been a question mm-hmm. asker and looking back now, I realize um, I'm glad I did and I'm glad I kept asking the questions. I'm, I am so glad. And I'm so glad that even back then, you were questioning their, you know, choices or, you know, so important. I, I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, like, I mean, I can remember my daughter asking questions at three. I mean, this is such a three, four, two. Mm-hmm. This is such a it's, it's who we are. So to mm-hmm. imagine being taught, don't ask questions. It just goes against our human nature. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We are, we are curious beings yes. and we, and we want to find out answers. We want to find out the truth. So, Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Charity, for being with us. Thank you for having me, Monique.